one more week in the book of Galatians. This is our 20th and final week. I get so attached to books of the Bible whenever I preach through them. And there's almost a sense of dread every time I get to the end of, the book of, of a book of a Bible. And I think uh, to myself, oh no, it's over. Now, now what are we going to do? <laughs> this, was, this was so worth our time. And I've loved this time of teaching. teaching. It's been so good uh, for me personally as, uh, as your pastor to, to read and study through this book of the Bible. I've received so much feedback over the past 20 weeks from you all about how God has been ministering to you through the preaching of this book of the Bible, and I'm so grateful for that. Every time I get done with the book of the Bible, I think, man, that's my favorite book of the Bible. <laughs> and and I, I said that once again uh, to myself this week, I think Galatians is my favorite book of the Bible. Then I'm like, Cody, you say that every single time. It doesn't matter what book you finish, that's your new favorite book. But there's so many reasons to like the book of Galatians, because I, I think... I think one of the biggest reasons is its clarity and its efficiency. I mean, we're just talking about six chapters. We're talking about something that you could sit down this afternoon and read in about 10 minutes. But we spent 20 weeks over it because there is so much here to contemplate. Every, every sentence matters. Every sentence is filled with so much truth for us to consider. And it really helps us answer some of the most common and reasonable questions that we have as religious people. I mean, you and I are here today because there's a sense in which we're religious. And we all have this, this uh, question on our minds. What do I got to do? What do I got to do to be right with God? What must I do to be saved from the eternal wrath of God and judgment upon sin? What do I got to do to be in his good grace? Like if you are one of those religious people who believes that God is the judge who believes that he will judge all of this world, all the people are in it, that are in it, including you, if you're one of those people that believes that you're going to stand before him and be judged by him, you have a question on your mind that is, what, what do I got to do? What do I got to do right now to make sure that goes well for me? If you're one of those people that believes this life is not all there is, that there's something coming after this, that it has to do with heaven and hell and God's judgment upon sin, if you want that to go well for you, you, you want to know the answer to this question. What, what do I got to do? In light of those realities, what must I do? Well, the message of Galatians is loud and clear. The message of Galatians says, here's what you got to do. Stop believing that your works will provide your salvation. Stop believing in a works-based salvation and start believing that Jesus has accomplished your salvation. That's the clear and loud message of Galatians. Stop believing in your works and start believing in the works of Christ. Jesus alone is our salvation. That's the Christian faith. Faith alone in who he is and his life, death, resurrection, ascension, that is the Christian faith. That is the gospel. And the reason that Paul wrote the letter to the, to the Galatian churches is because there was a group of people who said they were Christians and they were opposing that gospel message. Those people were false teachers known as the Judaizers. That's what Paul calls them. They were saying that, yeah, what Jesus did is great, and yes, we're going to call ourselves Christians, but you got to do something in addition to what Jesus did in order to be saved, in order for things to go right or go well for you when you stand before God, you got to do something more 
than what Jesus did for us. That started a colossal controversy in the early church days, and that controversy has lingered into our day. We still argue and debate and bicker back and forth about this same exact controversy today within Christianity, despite books of the Bible like Galatians. I mean, is my salvation Jesus plus nothing? Or is my salvation Jesus plus something I do? Where we, we know where Paul stands, at least. We know where Paul stands on the issue because we have just spent 20 weeks combing through every detail of the book of Galatians, and he could not be clearer. If we have to add something to what Jesus did on the cross, then he didn't save anybody. He didn't save any of us. If I have to add something to the works of Jesus Christ, then he didn't save me, and he didn't save you. We have made what he has done meaningless, according to Paul. Meaningless. We're all out to save ourselves, so good luck figuring out what it is that we got to do to be right with God. When Paul started to hear those works-based teachings, it was like nails on a chalkboard, and that's why he got so loud in opposition of it. That's why he got so clear in these New Testament letters. And there are still people today in church right now all across the planet Earth who believe, well, we still got to do something in order to be right with God. They deny, functionally, they deny the all-sufficient Savior who is Jesus Christ. They deny the all-sufficient gospel. We don't want to fall into that error but we're prone to do it. And so there's a part of you when you hear this gospel-centered, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone message, you wanna push back against it. And so we have to keep going back to books of the Bible like Galatians to be corrected over and over and over again. And right now, there's a part of you in your mind right now, it is your flesh, it is, it is the old you that's saying, no, you gotta do something, you gotta do something. Don't, don't, don't buy into that hook, line, and sinker. you got to do something in order to be right with God. Well, that part of you, this final little section of Galatians is just for that part of you. It's Paul's final warning to you. It's his final plea to you in this letter to the Galatian church, churches to repent of that heresy and to believe in the true, all-sufficient Savior of your soul. That's Jesus. Here's how he begins that final plea. We're in verse 11 of chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 11 in chapter 6 and take 11 through 18 today. But let me just take verse 11 because it's a little strange and it has, we've got some explaining to do here. Verse 11 says this. Paul says in his final warning and benediction, See with what large letters I am writing you with my own hand. <laughs> Why is he saying that? Why are we reading that? I thought it would, be, uh, it would make sense to stop right there before we go on and explain why he is saying, see with what large letters I am writing you with my own hand. So obviously back in this day when Paul is writing this letter, as he did all the Old Testament letters, he had no typewriter. There was no computer. None of that's going on. They had to write all of this by hand. And so it could be that at this point, Paul has written this entire letter and he's getting to the last little plea, this last and 
final warning and in an effort to emphasize what he's trying to say, he's writing in really big letters like, can you understand the words coming out of my mouth? Like, like that kind of thing going on at the end of the letter. Pay attention to what I'm about to say to you. It could be that that's what's happening here. But perhaps more likely what's happening is, is in that day, when you would write a letter like this to the churches and you were a teacher like Paul, you would often use uh, like a stenographer to write this letter for you. You would often, their, their word for it is eminensis. Eminensis? I, I can't say the word, but that's what it was. <laughs> it means a servant of the hand. And so what this servant would do is, they were your stenographer. Paul would say, okay, I'm getting ready to teach, and I want to send a letter to this church right here. Here's what I want it to say. And as Paul would speak, they would write it down. And then towards the end of the letter, as what happens oftentimes in the New Testament letters written by Paul, is he would have some sort of sign-off. Where he would grab a pen out of their hand and say, okay, now I'm going to finish this letter in my own Pauline way and, and let them know that this is me. They'll, they'll recognize my handwriting and it will authenticate my authorship right now. And so that could be what's happening in this moment is that Paul has grabbed the pen away from perhaps Barnabas or Timothy or Titus. He's grabbed the pen away from them and he's saying, okay, I'm going to finish this up. Pay attention, people. Look at my handwriting. You know it's me now. And it could, be, it could be that these people, they receive this letter and they're like, oh, look out. When it gets real sloppy right there, that's Paul. That, we know this came from Paul. Look at that handwriting. We don't, some scholars theorize that Paul used like a stenographer back in that day or, or, or the, the equivalent uh, to that because of his poor eyesight. Uh, some theorize that perhaps he was crippled in many ways because of all of the beatings that he received when he proclaimed the gospel in all of these different parts of the world, especially in the, the area of the Galatian churches, which were where he, we know he was beaten up so badly they thought he was dead and took him outside of the city to throw him away like trash because they just thought it was a dead carcass. And lo and behold, he's alive. It could be that in the, in the midst of some of those beatings, he was crippled to the point in which he couldn't write some of these letters. He had to use a servant of the hand to write these letters for him, and then at the end he would take the pen and do the best he could with his crippled hand to write his name and a last little sentence or warning of his own with these big sloppy letters. So that could be what's happening here in, in verse 11, regardless of which one of those theories is true. We know that in verse 11, Paul has taken the pen and he has become even more passionate. He is ready to get loud one last time. And he specifically wants us to know something about those works-based heretics. He wants us to know what motivates them. He wants us to know what gets them out of bed in the morning and gets them to go door to door trying to convince everyone that you have to be circumcised or do something in order to be truly saved or one of God's people. He says, let me tell you a little something about how they think and what motivates them to do this. Look at verses 12 and 13. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they, may be that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, 
but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Paul says, let me tell you what gets them out of bed in the morning. There's two maiden reasons, and neither one of them have to do with your salvation. I can tell you that right now. It all has to do with them making a good showing in the flesh. That's what they're about. So number one, here's what they're after. By convincing you to get circumcised, they'll avoid persecution in their life. And that's really all they're after. It's just self-preservation. They just want to avoid the conflict. They want to avoid the debate because in that day, the debate was costly. It would result in physical harm towards you and your family a lot of times. And so there was a lot at stake here. And people wanted to avoid that persecution. It came from two places. It came from the Jews, and it came from the Romans. Other Jews would persecute anyone who said they were a follower of the God of Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They would persecute anyone who said they were a follower of God and reject circumcision because that like, stole their identity away from them. You can't do that. You, you, are, you are creating a competing religion if you do that. And so if you do that, we will persecute you. And so by buying into this gospel message that Paul so clearly taught, that rejected circumcision salvation, it put their lives at risk of being persecuted by Jews. And we know that Paul was persecuted by Jews to the point of death. They were also persecuted by Romans, and it was because the Jews would use the Romans to persecute followers of Christ and rejectors of circumcision. What they would do is this, like, remember, Rome's in charge. And so Rome allowed Judaism to be legal because it was less of a hassle to make that legal because the Jewish people would always revolt and they're like, you know what, we're going to let you worship your God. You still got to pay homage to the imperial cult and believe that Caesar's God and all that stuff, but we'll let you have your thing over here if you'll just settle down and pay your taxes, right, and, 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 and be respectful. And so they allowed Judaism to be legal, but Christianity was not legal. And so what the Jews would do, they would, they would see you rejecting circumcision and they would call you a Christian to separate you from them. And then they would go and tell Rome, hey, listen, they are uh, participating in a religion that is not legal. Judaism's legal, but that's not Judaism. That's Christianity. And so Rome would respond to that accusation. And Rome would begin to kill Christians who bought into this religion because it was not authorized by Rome. And so, again, when Paul says they're just wanting you to get circumcised and saying circumcision is part of the deal so that, they have, so that they can avoid persecution, he meant it. There was a lot at stake. A lot of persecution came with believing in this salvation through Christ alone. So believing that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament was dangerous. It's dangerous to embrace that. And again, Nobody knew that more than Paul. He was just saying to them, listen, they don't care about truth. They care about self-preservation. They want to make a good showing in the flesh because that's the safest thing to do. And, of course, the irony of it all is that same old argument. Paul just wanted to get one more dig in one last time. They don't even keep the law themselves. They want you to get circumcised, but they don't even keep all the law. Well, we don't need to go back into that argument. Paul keeps circling back to that argument because that's his favorite argument. You think... You think circumcision is going to make you right before God? That's just one thing in the law. 
you got to do the whole law. If that's what you think you're doing, making yourself right with God using the law, don't stop at circumcision. Keep going. you got to fulfill the whole thing. He says the irony of these people who force you to get circumcised, they can't even do what they're telling you to do. Right? His age-old argument. All have fallen short of the glory of, uh, glory of God. We know that because of the law. Circumcision's not going to fix that. Nothing we do can fix that. But the second big thing that gets them out of bed in the morning, other than avoiding persecution, Paul says what gets them out of bed is that your circumcision is going to result in their praise. And that's what they're really after. In verse 13, he says, They desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. There it is. Pump those numbers, man. We got to look good. We're doing religion here. We're successful. How many circumcisions did you have this year? Oh, we had about a thousand. Wow. What an amazing ministry you must have. You are winning. Religious people, we just can't help ourselves with the numbers game. We just can't help it. We're we're so drawn to the numbers game. If you're not growing, you're shrinking. If you're shrinking, you're losing. You are a failure. If you're growing, you're winning. You are successful. That's about as deep as it gets for a lot of ministries and for a lot of pastors. And nothing's changed. It's always been that way. These heretics in the, in, in the early church, they were just like that. They loved to boast in the numbers. And we still like to do the exact same thing today. How's your church doing? Well, let's see. Tell me how many people you have and how many baptisms you have. And then I'll determine how well your church is doing, right? I mean, that's what it comes down to. You get a group of pastors in a room together, it's going to take about five minutes before we start talking about the size of our churches. We just did that community service here a few weeks back, right? I guess it's been months ago now, but how long do you think I was around that group of pastors before one of them said, how big is your church? And it happens all the time. And you know, when a pastor asks me this, I know they're asking out of insecurity, so I lie just to mess with them. I can't help myself being a jerk. <laughs> pastor comes up to me, we're standing there on that, whatever that was there, the barge. Hey, how many people are at the journey? How many people come to your church? And so I'm like, oh, well, yeah, since the pandemic, we're down to about 1,200. <laughs> <laughs> And you can see the wind, like, come out of their sails. Like, it's so disappointing to them that we could possibly be that successful in their eyes, right? So, uh, this one pastor, he's like, for real? You guys are 1,200 people? I'm like, no, we're not 1,200 people. This is Marietta, Ohio, man. We've got soccer practice to think about. No, we're not 1,200 people. Good grief, a bunch of pagans around here, man. Nobody goes in church. You're ridiculous. Little Timmy's got his D2 scholarship to think about. We got to get to soccer practice every Sunday. We got to go travel all across the world to play soccer against other 10-year-olds. Right? If now, if they spent half the amount of time on math as they did soccer, they'd understand that a D2 athletic scholarship is a scam. But we won't get into that. That's a whole other issue. <laughs> right? Don't get, you got to know it's a scam, right? You want to play soccer, play soccer, whatever. But we religious people, we love, we love the numbers game. 
We love to pump the numbers, we're obsessed with numbers, and we love to wrongfully measure success by numbers. You know, I once had someone come to the journey, I've had this happen multiple times over the years. Pastor, I've been listening to you preach for a while, and God has given me a message, and I have to deliver it to you. And so, every time that happens, I always wonder, like, I'm not hard to reach. I don't know why God doesn't give me the messages directly. My, my phone number's all over the website, but you got a message you got to give me. Okay, let's go to lunch. I'll even pay for lunch. So we go to lunch, and this individual said, God told me to tell you this. Because of your faithful preaching of God's word, the Journey Church is going to grow to 3,000 people. You're going to have hundreds of baptisms every year. What do you got to say to that? Well, I thought for a second, and I looked back at him, and I said, I am about to greatly disappoint you. <laughs> and I did. Because <laughs> if you've noticed, we're not 3,000 people. And we didn't have hundreds of baptisms any year of the journey. So either God was wrong or he was wrong. Which was it? I know what I'm putting my money on. But he wanted to measure success in numbers because that's what we religious people do. That's what makes sense to us. However, I would be lying to you if I didn't admit that his flattering comment appealed to me. It appealed to my flesh. I couldn't help but think for a minute, I must be doing something good. I must be something up there. Can you imagine if we were 3,000 people, where would we put them all? Wow, we, we will have arrived if we grew to 3,000 people, right? Then what? Would we just stop ministry because we, we won? What would happen? I could puff out my chest so big if we were three, 4,000 people. Can you imagine? When we read in the letters of, uh, of the apostles in the New Testament to God's church, we see that mindset rebuked over and over and over and over again in this way. We are never to be what is impressive about this gathering. If it's anything about us that is impressive about our gathering, then we are losing. If what is impressive about us is our exaltation of our Savior Jesus, we are winning. That's how you measure success. When you gather as the local church, what are you doing? Are you being impressive? Or are you worshiping that which is actually impressive, that is our all-sufficient Savior? What Paul is saying to these people, he's saying, let me be really clear what they are trying to accomplish with their numbers game and their boasting game. Here's what they're trying to do. They're trying to manipulate you. They're trying to use you. And they're, don't let their religious, self-centered hype manipulate you into believing something that isn't true. Repent of that and believe the true gospel that's actually all about Jesus and nothing about us. If you're going to boast in anything at all, boast in Jesus. That is the only Christian way to behave. It's the only thing we have to boast in. Look at verses 14 through 16. He's not done. 
But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So he's saying in contrast to those Judaizers, those false teachers who always boast in human efforts in all sorts of different ways, Paul says the cross of Jesus is the only thing we should ever be boasting in. And if you understand the cross of Jesus rightfully, you'll know that it logically excludes all other boasting because we didn't add anything to the sufficiency of that work. We didn't add anything to it. What could we boast in then? Nothing. We have nothing that we bring to the table. It reminds me of of what he says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says it here, he says it in every letter. We could go anywhere. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Can you imagine being a Christian, a professing Christian, and reading such a clear and explicit explanation of the gospel that is a very clear and an explicit message against human effort? and yet still thinking that we have to add something to the the sufficient work of Christ? Can you imagine? What is informing your faith, if not this? And if it's that, why are you still calling yourself a Christian? You haven't submitted to the uh, teachings of the apostles like what Christians do. So, I mean, holding on to a belief that contradicts the clear teaching of Scripture, it's unchristian. But... When it comes to works-based salvation, I will admit this, it's the hardest religious belief to let go of. We have a lot of ingrained religious beliefs in our lives, things that because of the culture that we've grown up in, because of our natural sinful nature, there are things that we buy into and believe that are really hard to undo. Really hard to undo. So I don't, I don't wanna take away from the struggle that is there. When you decide to deny works-based salvation, it is a miracle. It is a miracle. Because we really don't want to let go of that when it's programmed into us. You know, we, we, we think that when we, when we look in this world, here's how we're programmed to think. This world is fallen and broken, and, and there's something wrong between us and God, and that's why things are so bad here and bad in my life. And so that problem is real and true, and I have to fix it. How am I going to fix it? i got to do better. i got to think better. i got to be better. Or God's not going to love me. So hurry and do something and make sure it's religious. That's generally how we think about religion. i gotta, I got to do something and, and fix that something that went wrong between us and God. Paul says, I've died to that. I'm, I've been crucified to the world. That's, that's the way the world thinks, and I don't do that. I'm dead to that. I am dead to that way of thinking, and the world's way of thinking is dead to me. We don't solve the problem between us and God. Jesus does that. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. It doesn't count for anything at all. Here's a great exercise. Take any 
religious ritual, any religious sacrament, any religious sacrifice, and replace the word circumcision or uncircumcision there with any one of those rituals or sacrifices or sacraments, whatever you want to do, replace it into that sentence verse, in verse 15, and it works. It still works. Remember, Paul's not anti-circumcision. He's not saying circumcision is bad. He is circumcised. Some of his followers are circumcised. Sometimes when one of his followers becomes a Christian, he circumcises them. Other times they become a Christian and he doesn't circumcise them. He is not against circumcision. To Paul, the problem is that when you're factoring in circumcision into your salvation, when you factor in a work into your salvation, that's the heresy. That's the problem. Because circumcision, in and of itself, it doesn't count for anything. Or any other ritual. Or any other religious rite or sacrament. Replace, that, replace circumcision or uncircumcision with any act of your choice. And verse 15 still works. Human acts of worship don't save anyone. They've never saved anyone in the history of mankind. Only Jesus has saved anyone who's been saved. Past, present, and future. He's the only thing God's people have to boast in. He's the only thing when it comes to salvation. So, Paul's saying one last time, I'm not going to add anything to the work of Christ because it would make his work meaningless. You know, there's clear, there's, there's, believe it or not, there's even clearer places in Scripture in terms of salvation when it comes to human effort. I mean, go wrestle with Romans 9, verse 16. And speaking of salvation, he says, and I quote, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's what it depends on. At the end of the day, Paul says, it doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So what does count, Paul? What does he say? What counts is a new creation. That's what counts. Remember, he's, I just imagine this part of the big letter section is the biggest part. A new creation. I just imagine him writing in the biggest letters possible at this point. A new creation. That's what counts. That's what the gospel's about. It's about the new creation. When you open the beginning of your Bible, you see paradise. Everything's perfect. Sin enters the world and corrupts everything, and everything's bad. You see the story of God's people from Genesis to Revelation. You get to the conclusion of the Bible in Revelation, and paradise is restored. It's a new creation. And in the midst of this, we live our lives we live our lives as the people of God for a reason not because of us but it's because the Bible has revealed to us that God is renewing he is redeeming and renewing his creation there is a, a chosen people that we're told in Ephesians chapter 1 he chose before the foundation of the world before we ever existed he exists outside of time he could see the beginning at the, and the end at the same time he created all of it makes perfect sense then for him 
to have chosen people before the foundation of the world. He chose people, he sent his son to die for that chosen people, and then he gave these people new life and an internal inheritance that they could have never have earned because they were sinful. That's the gospel. The gospel is, is the message that makes us right with him. It's the message that makes us holy before him. It's the message that will perfect us before him. Justification, sanctification, glorification, if you want the religious words. That's the good news of the gospel and the Holy Bible. That's the news of how paradise is restored. God did not leave his creation to, to play out in endless sin and corruption. He is redeeming it, and he's making all things new. So those who believe this gospel message, those are the people who reveal themselves to be the chosen people of God. They are believers in that new creation because they were chosen before the foundation of the world. That's why they believe. They themselves, even now, on this side of heaven, are new creations. They've been, as Jesus describes, born again. That's something we didn't control our first birth. We don't control our second birth. We didn't, we didn't, there was no, there was none of my human will or exertion in my first birth. There's no human will or exertion in my second birth, in my spiritual birth. I've been born again. That's your homework text. Everybody loves John 3.16. Man, John 3.16, rightfully so. What an amazing, beautiful gospel, like in a nutshell verse of the Bible, John 3.16. But read John 3.16 in light of John 3.1 through 15 and it will blow your mind. If you've spent your entire life plucking John 3.16 out of the Bible and propping it up and drawing all sorts of conclusions from it outside of context, I challenge you, put it back in context. Read John 3.1-15 and then read John 3.1-15 again and then slow down and read John 3.1-15. Pay attention to the conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. Pay attention to what the answer Jesus gives Nicodemus is. Pay attention to how he describes the work of the Holy Spirit and being born again, how it happens. Pay attention to that and then prop up John 3.16. It will blow your mind. I feel like I knew John 3.16 way before I knew John 3, 1 through 15. I'm so glad I left it in its context because it's so much bigger than what I realized. God is making all things new. He's making a new creation. He's restoring paradise. Jesus knew that. That's what he taught. That's what he came to do. He came to inaugurate it. And when you and I read and study and, and worship and and think about this gospel, we too become a part of this new creation that God is making. It saves us for this eternal inheritance that we didn't do anything to deserve. If you embrace this, there will be pushback. Probably not as much as what they got in Paul's day, but we will get pushback for it. That's why Paul says in verse 16, and for all who walk by this rule, this gospel, Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. He's saying, hey, you're going to be hated on, so I'm going to pray for you right now. I'm praying for peace, and I'm praying for mercy. 
because people don't naturally believe this stuff and they're not going to like it when you say it out loud, especially religious people and even people who say they're Christians. So peace and mercy be upon you. He's got two more sentences here, 17 and 18. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Paul's expressing one last frustration. And I think this is his way of saying, stop troubling me with this. Stop circling back to the same heresy over and over and over again. Stop coming back to works-based salvation. Be settled on this issue. Have conviction with it. Have some passion with it. Proclaim it boldly. It's going to cost you. It's cost me. I got my scars right here. I bear the marks of Jesus. He's talking about all, why his hands crippled, potentially. He's talking about why you know, the scars on his face from being stoned what they thought was to death. It'll cost you, he says. This gospel message that these Judaizers avoided to stay safe, I, I preach, I bought into it, and you should buy into it too because it's true. Not because it's safe, because it's true. That's why you should believe it. So are you settled on the gospel? That's the question I want to leave you with. After spending 20 weeks in the book of Galatians, I guarantee you that something in this book has bothered you because you're religious. It's bothered me. I guarantee there's something that we've studied along the way that you're like, no, that can't be true. That's not what I believe. And then it caused you to stop and think. It caused you to hesitate. That's what reading the, the Bible does to you when you're trying, when you're putting forth an effort. It corrects you, it rebukes you, it smacks you on the hand, it sets you straight. And Christians submit to it because it's our final court of authority. It's God's word. It's the teachings of the apostles who were authorized by Jesus, our all-sufficient Savior. That's the only thing that makes sense to me as a Christian. Wandering away from this makes no sense to me. Christianity doesn't make sense to me. When I draw conclusions from somewhere else in the world, if I'm not willing to change the way I think and conform to this word of God that has informed Christianity from the beginning, then what am I even doing? Be settled on this issue. There is clarity here in the book of Galatians. There's conviction here. And we are meant to read this and be settled on it. So what must I do? What do I got to do? Galatians is clear. Believe. That's it. Believe. Believe the gospel. Exalt our Savior. That is the book of Galatians. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this season of study through this incredible New Testament letter that challenges us in so many ways. Lord, there's things that we study in this book of the Bible that just flat out bother us, and that's good. We're supposed to be bothered. Lord, we are fallen, imperfect people. We don't have perfect doctrine and theology. We'll hold on to false teachings and limited understandings for so long and be so unwilling to conform to your word for so long. But Lord, no matter how long that's been for each of us as individuals, I pray that we would let go of the things that are not of you and that we would believe 
the truth that you would have us to believe through your word. Help us to submit to it, Lord, to your glory. Help us, Lord, to see the logic in the gospel, that we have nothing to boast in. That, that belief in the gospel means there's nothing to look for in what I've done because nothing is added to what you've done. It is enough alone. Help us to put our faith in that, Lord, as we live in this fallen and broken world because the, here's the truth of the matter. Any of our human efforts or attempts to save ourselves will fail. So, Lord, if we put any hope in our human will or exertion or efforts in any way, it'll lead us to despair and confusion and, and we'll lack assurance, Lord, because we can't accomplish it. We can't do it. Lord, help us to find the security that we're meant to find in your gospel message that you are enough. And may we boldly proclaim this even when it costs us. Lord, we, we know that it's not safe, that there are people around us that will hate us for believing this. People in our own families who will offend. We will offend by even believing this. But Lord, this gospel is what saves us. It's what brings us peace. Help us to honor you as we study it. Um, Lord, may all of this go to your glory and your glory alone. Mm -hmm.